Running with Jake, the podcast. On this episode... I don't necessarily buy in completely to Aliad's No Human is Limited. I think what he means is that we can probably all do a little bit better than we might initially imagine. Running with Jake, the podcast. Because every runner needs the occasional plot. And here's your host, Jake Lowe. Welcome to the show, Running with Jake, the podcast, your weekly dose of running motivation. It is actually Tuesday morning to let you into a little secret. That's when we're recording this particular episode of the podcast. It's been a very productive morning. I'm going to start the day as I mean to go on. I've already done a wash. That's super positive. I've checked in on my runners to see what they've been up to. Been doing a bit of coaching, sending some voice messages, and I almost, almost put the dishwasher on. Uh, you know, when you said you did a wash, I thought you meant you'd, you'd put the dishwasher on, but you mean you washed your body. No, 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 I've not done that bit yet. Actually, damn it. No, I've not done that yet. Okay. Hang on, just oh, add no. that to so, the list. So, the body, so, so, just for clarity, your body's dirty. wash before recording. <laughs> cool. Um, no, basically, I, I did a, a training kit wash. I mean, it's, it's like all... That's, that's all the washing we ever seem to do, or I seem to do, let's be honest. That's my particular responsibility in the house in Winchester. It is down to me to wash our training kit, and there's so much of it. Sure. Two of us in the house, people listening to this, that if you are a couple that runs, you will know there's just an abundance of training kits. A bit of a nightmare. Yeah, you see, what you should do is you should do what I do. Um, and, uh, by the way, when I say you should do what I do, don't do what I do, because it's grotesque. But you know I'm a non-running guy who does run occasionally, and, like, I'll go and do... Mm five or seven or 9k or whatever it is i've no idea because i've not really measured the distance um but i i i put my my top on i put my shorts on i put my little um my little trainer socks on and i put my trainers on and i go out the door and that's that and then when i get back what i do is i leave those things on a hook in the bathroom and i don't wash them and then the next time i get in them they've got stale sweat and then the next time, and they last me three or four times, and each time, oh. each time, mate, I feel more manly because I put it on <laughs> and I go, oh, man sweat. And the thing is, like, what I can do, because I'm not a running person, is I can put the kit on, and it's very comfortable, and then I can sit around the house. But in reality, what I want to do is I want to get outside into the fresh air because then I can't smell it, you see? So the more I run, the less I can smell of it. And then as it becomes fresh sweat, it's less of an issue. See, you are really turning people off right now. There's people listening to this cringing at the thought of you wearing your manly, stale, sweated training kit for like five days in a row. That's not good. Well, do you know what? On the subject of training kit, I actually have a bit of a theory here. And and what we tend to do is, yes, we're talking about sweaty training kit here, okay, on the show today. That's what we're talking about. We will move on from this topic at some point. Got a great guest today, by the way. Super guest. But... Sweat, fresh sweat does not smell. No, it doesn't. No, I, I run pretty frequently, so if if I'm wearing a top and it's like I don't know, it's like an easy run and I don't get too sweaty and this kind of thing, then I may kind of put it in the airing cupboard to wear the following day. But it's, having said that, it's not normally something that's against my skin. It's probably something like a gilet, so it's more like a a mid layer or an outer layer and then the same goes for like gloves maybe a hat as well if I'm wearing that I'll just kind of air it out but I'll only wear it maybe twice at the absolute most I mean I suppose sometimes maybe three times but it's rare and then it absolutely goes in the wash I just I just like fresh smelling training kit man but I do too but I also like the smelly stuff as well because it does motivate me to run now you mentioned their gloves do you actually wash your gloves <laughs> Gosh, yes. Oh, like always, always. But what, how? What, what do they smell? What do they smell of? I've got gloves, you see. And, and um, 
they don't. My hands don't sweat. It just keeps my hands warm. No, I mean you don't no smell. Yeah. They don't smell. But, but your hands will sweat. I mean, it's not like your body chooses where to kind of sweat from. I mean, I'm sure you're going to get more sweat under the warmer places, the crevices, as it were, Peter, like your armpits <laughs> oh, and, and maybe some other areas that we won't go. We won't go there today. <laughs> but your hands definitely sweat, and and especially. And I know it's a little bit grim. Oh gosh, I feel like we started this show badly on the wrong foot here. Please, but. You know, if you need to kind of wipe certain parts of your body, it could just be your brow. Mm. It might also be your nose. A lot of people get a little bit of a runny nose when they're running. What do you do? What do you do? You're not going to pull out a hanky, are you? You're going to use your gloves. And in fact, (laughs) many gloves have like an area that is protected and it's got some padding on and it's used for kind of wiping stuff. Well, fairly randomly, I guess. So you need to wash your gloves, man. You've got to wash your gloves. I never knew any of this. Honestly, I never knew any of this. And I must say that my gloves, and this will repulse you, uh, they have never been washed in a whole year. And I'm not joking. But they don't smell. They don't smell. They really don't. But and you say that people, you don't have, you don't pull out a handkerchief. Well, funnily enough, I do pull out a handkerchief. And what I do, <laughs> I know. I know people will go, oh, no, he uses a handkerchief. I've always used a handkerchief. What can I say? There'll be people who will be absolutely repulsed by that. But and similarly, they'll be probably about 15 to 20% of people. And I, I, I think that's pretty conservative in my guess, in my guesstimate there. But 15 to 20% of people will be saying, actually, I'm also a hanky user. Um, and and there'll be the other percentage of people who are secret hanky users. But I'm a proud handkerchief user, so I will be on my run. I'll have it in my right pocket. I'll pull it out. I've got I've got one there. Look, I've got oh, one there. Man, I've always away. got one. I've always got one. Okay, and and I'll be running, and then I'll mop the brow like that. And if I need to, um, if I need to mop the nose, I'll mop the nose as well. And there we go. And then the, then the handkerchief goes in the wash, but the gloves don't. So I'm not I'm not I'm not you know wiping things on my gloves i'm wiping it on the handkerchief which goes in the in the wash you have always been a handkerchief user for as long as i, I can have, remember yes. Pete. as long as i've known you there's pete with his hanky pulling it out wafting it about it's disgusting <laughs> it's disgusting and i'm just very pleased that we, we don't record this live and then we record the guest i'm really pleased that we actually pre-record the guest because if today's guest was waiting in the wings to for me to introduce him onto the show and he was listening to this nonsense he would be off he'd be gone we'd go to the guest and they'd just be like beep he'd be gone there'd be nothing there'd be nothing he, he is a brilliant guest and I've already already edited him and listened to him and was there for the recording as well and he's a really good guest um, and uh, it was it was really hard pinning him down in the first place as well wasn't it that was tricky so we wouldn't want him to uh, you know do, do a bunk at this point it was worth the wait for sure you're going to love today's guest he's coming up next for the show notes and video content go to runningwithjake.com forward slash podcast are you a small business owner or self-employed is the admin starting to take over your life and your enjoyment of your business you started your business with a vision if you're the same as most small business owners that vision wasn't spending long hours on admin that take you away from what you love doing sounds like a virtual assistant is what you need To find out exactly what they do, how they can help, and so many useful small business management tips, then listen to the podcast, How to Work with a VA Day-to-Day on your podcast app. Running with Jake, the podcast. I am so excited to be introducing today's guest, 
to the show, Dr Andy Jones. He's the Professor of Applied Physiology at the University of Exeter. And some of you may be familiar with Andy from the Breaking 2 documentary. This was a popular documentary that saw Elliot Kipchoge attempt, his first attempt at breaking the magical, golden two-hour barrier for the marathon. And that was filmed in Italy at the racetrack in Monza. And Andy was the lead physiologist for that project. It's an absolute pleasure to be talking to him today. Andy... Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's uh, good to be here, finally. We did have a <laughs> little mess up, didn't we, before Christmas, but uh, all ready to go today. I can't tell you how upset Jake was after that. And since then, <laughs> it's just been going on about today. He's been going, mate, I can't wait to speak to Andy. I can't wait to speak to Andy. And you know, obviously, you were looking around used cars with your wife, and um, and Jake called me up and he went, mate, he's put it off. He's put it back. I really hope it happens. I really hope it happens. And it's happened. So this is, are you happy now, Jake? I'm very happy. And in fact, we're going to get people fired up today on the show, Andy. It's great to chat to you. Obviously, really want to pick your brains on all things physiology and specifically running. But first of all, I want to know a little bit about your running because I follow you on Instagram. I've seen some of your webinars and some of your presentations. I know you have some goals of your own as well as helping lots of other people, including elite athletes. What are your running goals? What are you training for this year? Because it was marathon that was a focus for you, wasn't it? Yeah, and it still is because I didn't didn't quite achieve what I wanted to there. So, I mean, the history is that I used to be, you know, pretty good as a middle to long distance runner as a junior, and then I kind of was in and out of it for a while. I didn't quite achieve my potential, and I got, as you say, I got kind of sidetracked into helping people who were more talented than me, and you know, helping them um, achieve their goals. Um, but then I, you know, was getting towards the age of fifty, and I thought I need to just kind of do something now that keeps me exercising sort of for the longer term and obviously with marathons which there were two things about marathons one you can't go into a marathon without training without being really well prepared and two it was a race at a, a distance that i'd never raced before so you know rather than look back and you know compare my 5k or 10k half marathon times to things i'd done 20 or 30 years ago it was automatically going to get a pb but of course being a bit competitive you have to decide you know what is a challenging goal and uh, and for me it became breaking three i've run two marathons so far neither of them went as well as they might my debut was the uh, sea of galilee marathon was really really hot and i struggled around in the end my preparation wasn't right for it um, and i did 334 and then uh, not so long after that i ran the moscow marathon where the weather conditions were completely different it was like hail and freezing cold and i did 301 and i think actually i probably on a better course I would have done that but then Covid's got in the way so I've missed a couple of opportunities I keep getting injured as well and I'd I'd missed a couple of races prior to the Sea of Galilee one actually I'd trained for Paris and for New York and picked up injuries and things anyway the goal now to cut to the chase to get to finally get to the answer to your question is that I'm hoping to run the Brighton Marathon in um, I think it's the 11th of April awesome it's on my list I hear very good things about the Brighton Marathon and no you say cut to the chase it's great to get into your story as well and it's very easy to ask an expert like you all about the world of physiology and the people that you've helped but we've all got our own motivations and it's funny what you mentioned there about your goal and oh, I want to pick a goal here but it's something that challenges me and it sounds like you were quite clever with how you came to that conclusion of, of what, which goal to set yourself because you wanted something that's achievable but going to challenge you and and avoid comparing yourself to kind of old or younger Andy as it were you know so I think that's a really a really smart move just picking up on what you mentioned about the couple of marathons you have done and perhaps not not quite gone to plan what are some of the key things that 
you learned from those two races that you can use to help you move forward for the likes of Bryson? One of the things is that the environmental conditions make a heck of a difference. And when it came to the the Sea of Galilee marathon, I probably shouldn't have started that race. I I wasn't particularly well. Um, I had been coughing for a few days and, and the weather was really hot. There wasn't enough fluid really on the course either. It was supposed to be a sort of very flat course, but it was more like undulating, I would say. And, and pacing is a key consideration as well. You know, I, I, th- I thought I'd be capable of about 320, but given the conditions and given my state of fitness and health going into that race, that was a bit too ambitious. And I really struggled over the last few miles. I don't really remember the last few miles, to be honest. I think the last 2.2K took me, um, you know, I was doing about 11-minute mile in. I mean, I can't run that slowly normally, so something seriously had gone wrong. So, you know, it was a good experience to hit the wall, but clearly getting your nutrition right, because I didn't do that the day before, especially while the, the access to the right sorts of foods where I was that evening wasn't wasn't good. Um, and there wasn't, as I say, much in the way of carbohydrate-based drinks available in the race itself so all of that stuff in combination meant that i wasn't going to achieve what i what i thought i might and then it was just really cold in moscow again that was supposed to be fast and flat but it was quite hilly and uh, and extremely cold but i ran 58 42 for 10 miles a few weeks after that which meant you know i think had i been able to run a marathon again i probably would have gone under the three hours so i think it's still realistic you can obviously over prepare for it as well and i do tend to try and tick every every box be pretty meticulous in my preparations but really is the consistency and and not training as hard as you can it's about training enough so that you're in the shape that you need to be to achieve the goal you don't need to shatter the goal i think that's how i used to train when you're young and you can take those risks and your anatomy is in uh, is in better nick you can get away with it but i'm finding now when you you know in your into your 40s and 50s that's much more difficult it's quite difficult isn't it if you're of the personality type where you're quite driven and you really want to achieve things. I mean, you must see this, Andy, that I think there's people out there that train uh, as hard, if not almost harder than than elite athletes, if they're able to, if they've got the lifestyle that allows them to really to commit to training. We know COVID has obviously enabled people, a lot of people to work more from home, a little bit more time on their hands to train, really push serious club runners. But it's not always about go, go, go. You've got to back off as well. And that's really difficult. Just picking up on the nutrition thing, because this really interests me, Andy, and, and it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I saw of the, the Breaking 2 documentary, Documentary with with obviously Kipchoge uh, Elliot and he's just missed out on that with the the, the uh, his other two athletes the three of them one of the things that came out of that moving forward was nutrition a focus on nutrition kind of sharpening things up and you mention it there what's your view on kind of nutrition for a marathon through your own experience and from what you know from helping others what like what would you do for brighton now kind of to 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 nail the nutrition or get it better if you like it's really about carbohydrate i mean for me at the moment i'm i'm overweight as well that's the other thing that i've got to get right over the next i think it's about 14 weeks to go so i'm going to have to be in a bit of a calorie deficit but you obviously still need to make sure that you're getting enough carbohydrate in particular between sessions to be able to do them effectively so there's all of that happening but i think you probably mean on you know when it comes to the race itself the training will taper off a little bit the carbohydrates proportion of the calories that I take in and the diet will remain high. So the idea is that you go into the race with high muscle glycogen stores and then you just got to do the best you can to top those up as you go along. You know, so um, if you're using more carbohydrate and less fat when you're running let's say a marathon, the amount of oxygen that you need to consume to run at a given speed is less. So in other words, you're a bit more economical. So the more carbohydrate you can use, the better, provided that you don't run out of it before the finish line. We don't quite have enough 
that we can store in our muscles to take us to 26.2 miles. So therefore trying to get in 70 or 80 grams, if you can, of carbohydrate per hour via gels, via drinks. And of course, the, that will depend a little bit on the weather conditions as well, because you've got to balance the hydration requirements with the energy and the carbohydrate requirements. But you know, all of that's really important. But the carbohydrate intake is quite crucial. And again, it's not easy to do. It's something that you certainly have to practice. It's something that the, um, the elite East Africans that we worked with, including Elliot, lesser so Elliot, but certainly some of the other guys, were really quite naive about. And if there's a, a legacy or something that, you know, w- there were several things that I think the Break Into project contributed to the advancement of marathon performance but the but nutrition was certainly one of them and helping people to realize that not only is it really important in the race itself i think some of them appreciated that but you can't just rock up to you know new york or chicago marathon and start taking drinks every 5k and expecting to be able to swallow them at the speeds that you're running at and the rate of ventilation that you're having to maintain so practicing it in training you know they do that now where they didn't do previously and i think while elliot was pretty good at it and he got better for breaking two he got better again for the Ineos 159 challenge that was something that I think was a lesson learned from breaking two I think we'd sold the story to all of the athletes really well we provided the bespoke nutrition you know when we collected the the water bottles at the end of the event they hadn't they weren't able to consume as much carbohydrate as we'd as we'd hoped but that's something that you learn from and, and improve for the future is there a difference in strategy here Andy from what you can tell in terms of nutrition and fueling, I'm talking in the race now. So, you know, taking energy gels on or drinks or whatever form that carbohydrate may take. Is there a difference in strategy depending on how long you are anticipating being out there on the course for? So, you know, the five hour marathon, six hour marathon runner versus the, let's say the three hour marathon runner. Should they have a slightly different kind of focus you know should it be more on carbohydrates should it be more on teaching the body to burn fat as a fuel source should they be going uber slow in their long runs to help that conditioning what's your sort of view on that yeah uh, you know and i was talking more about the two or three hour people there because the relative intensity of exercise is quite high people like elliot will be operating at probably 85 percent plus of his vo2 max that whole way so in a sense it's not a test of long endurance in that regard it's only two hours and therefore, the intensity that they can sustain is relatively high. Same if you're doing three hours. It's not a it's not a walk in the park. But if you're doing five, six hours, yeah, then absolutely, it's a kind of a different ball game. Then it's a bit less important. I think you do need to be able to to utilise fats as well as as carbs. And it doesn't mean to say that your nutrition is not important. And making sure that you take carbohydrate on board as you go is going to be crucial as well. But probably your goals, if you're a five or six hour marathon runner, is is less probably about improving your performance as about enjoying the experience and getting around in one piece it's very different isn't it especially when it's your first time running a marathon especially if you're not a lifelong runner i know you've been running you know for many years and and done very well at short the shorter distances middle distances and then stepping up to the marathon is slightly different but for people that are kind of finding running later in life because let's face it there's many people that that happens to probably lots of people listen to this episode now it's a slightly different thing and you've almost a got to go and chalk up some experience haven't you to kind of learn from it i mean if if we can watch the likes of breaking two and see that those guys at the top of their game are still learning from those experiences to then apply that in the future i think there's got to be something that we can take from that surely yeah uh, you know and elliot and paula radcliffe and everybody all the famous people i've worked with over the years i think they would say you know they wish they'd known at certain times in their career what they know now because it is very easy just to reflect on a couple of things we've touched on already it's very easy to train too hard 
you know, when actually just backing off a couple of percent and being really consistent rather than have this sort of boom and bust where you have, you know, six or seven really good weeks, get an injury or an illness and you miss two or three weeks and then you're kind of having to re- reboot all of the time. Probably if you just backed off a few percent in the first place and were able just to train continuously through, you know, Elliot does do that pretty well, to be fair. You know, he, he knows that it isn't about smashing everybody or himself in training. It's about progression from day to day, week to week, month to month, year to year. It's the same with the nutrition as well. You know, I certainly learned a lot from the two marathons that I finished and I'll take that experience forward. And yeah, certainly the the, the more races you can do, the better. But certainly the, the marathon is a completely different event to any of the other ones that I trained for in the past. You know, I think if, you, if you've run a few 5Ks, you've got a pretty good idea of what a 10K is going to feel like. And you probably don't need to run more than one or two 10Ks to really learn what's required but i think the marathon is very different you know um just things change you're on the road so long and things are changing around you things are changing internally it's just a long time to be focusing for as well that's the other thing that i forgot to mention in response to one of your earlier questions is that managing the boredom the the psychology of marathon running is very different from anything else you know i used to run 1500 3k 5k etc and you're used to just concentrating and working really hard that whole time you're breathing really hard you know and you're and you're racing and you're having to focus and you're looking at competitors you just can't do that for three hours plus you have to switch off and, and managing the mental energy is quite tricky that's something that i was better at in moscow but certainly something i can improve on further interestingly have you have you got any and i'm really interested to know this actually andy do you have any kind of tried and tested methods things that work for you you know when the going does get tough in those races and maybe you're in moscow the weather's not quite what you thought where do you go in your mind how do you kind of null that boredom as it were or stay focused i don't know really uh it's a really good question i was dreading that you were going to ask me that i think it's really hard you've just got to somehow get your head down and just kind of dig in and, and get through it because you you will get through it you just have to realize that it's a bad patch and things will improve again they typically do you know but that doesn't mean that it can be irresistible that kind of devil on your shoulder saying what the hell are you doing this for why don't you stop you know (laughs) but you just got to tough it out really there's no um no magic sort of formula to it on the subject of being quite practical now i guess in terms of the training components so there's various ingredients the key ingredients necessary to run a successful marathon and i'm talking kind of you know the 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 the, uh let's use three hours as an example kind of three to four hours and and beyond that rather than the kind of elite level what's the key component what's the most important session is it the long run if it is the long run what's your view on how to run that in the main is it a case of running them particularly slow do you advise to put in some kind of quality components and i I do appreciate it's going to be different for different people i'm really interested to know your view on that yeah it's a really good question i don't think anybody knows definitively what that is because of course yeah i mean it it's almost a bit artificial to select one session because it's how that session fits within the week and within the, the whole 12 or 16 weeks that you're doing, et cetera. But yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you what Elliot thinks, if you like, and that is that it's the long run. So, you know, he has these long reps that he does on a Tuesday morning on the track. He does fart looks, he does various distance and speed pace, you know, sessions. But for him, it's the long run that they do on a Thursday morning. And that's the one session he never wants to miss. So, I kind of agree with that. I think there's nothing that's more specific than the long run. So I think building up the distance there 
is preparing yourself psychologically as well as physically. So you're getting used to using the right fuels. You get to practice the drinking. You get to learn that you'll have bad patches and good patches and managing your physical resources effectively, psychologically is, is crucial as well. Um, I think it's useful to build up time on your feet. So if you're aiming to run the marathon distance in say three hours, then I think you have to be capable of running two hours to two and a half hours reasonably frequently and not being too uh, too knackered by that. I prefer, I, I do most of my training on the treadmill, by the way, um, I prefer to sort of do that intermittently as well. So I'll just break it up to make things a little bit more manageable for me. So I might do something like 10 times one mile marathon race pace with quarter of a mile in between or something like that. So I think doing some sections of that marathon at marathon pace whatever you're capable of at the moment ideally but maybe pushing towards what your goal marathon pace is is pretty important as well so if again yeah if i had to choose one session it would probably be that but it is important as well to train at speeds faster than the marathon if you want to sort of improve your your fitness so that you know a, a certain speed feels a bit easier each time you do it then i think you do need to be doing those as well and you could do those as shorter tempo type runs or you could do it as interval training but it's that it's that whole balance you've got to have the some days are going to be harder than others um you'll have a mix of short intervals long intervals tempos long runs marathon pace runs and so forth and and obviously the there's some science to that but the art there's an art to it as well in terms of balancing them all out so that you progress incrementally without ever quite overdoing it and it's it's tricky business as we all know so well but that's what we should be aiming for the art's the hard bit isn't it i think and potentially the the frustrating element because actually you can get all scientific with the sessions and you can fit them together like a jigsaw puzzle across the week and build in those recovery weeks and and that downtime but then it's that art as you say and, and i always say as a coach people aren't robots you know that they, they have lives and they have emotions and they have good days and bad days and they sleep well they sleep poorly so you know we're not elite athletes the vast majority of us we've got other stuff going on so it's important to kind of factor that in but even if you are an elite athlete you're still a human you get the same issues actually it may be a bit more manageable in that if you're an elite athlete you might be able to sleep in a bit longer and have a, you know have a nap of an afternoon to catch up but it's still a bit unpredictable you know, I did a long, longish run on on Sunday, um, eleven miles, not too long, but I'm just kind of building that up. And I did an easy run yesterday. I just did three and a half, yeah, three and a half miles, pretty easy yesterday. And um, my expectation was that I'd feel pretty good today because I'm supposed to do seven miles this evening with sixteen times one minute intervals included in it. And I'm, but I'm still feeling more tired today than I wanted to be so that 11 miler is still having some effects that i wasn't quite anticipating so i have to work out whether i'm so more tired than i expected to be that i should do something different today or whether it's actually it's part of the training process and i can still go ahead i think i'm probably still going to go ahead um and it might be an error i don't know but i think you know there are times when despite being tired you still got to do the session and that's where actually having an independent more objective coach is probably useful i don't have that i am my own coach and i always have been so you know there's that's a double-edged sword perhaps it's a tricky responsibility to have isn't it i mean i'm I'm a coach but i self-coach so i have my own goals like yourself my goal is exactly the same as yours andy and it's a big goal for me it's not something that's easy i don't think i break three and then i suddenly go on to 245 and 240 and so on it doesn't happen i think this is kind of you know all out everything's got to line up nicely you know the stars have got to align for that to happen but actually because i self-coach sometimes i can second guess myself and question the sessions that i've set for myself now i don't do that with my runners because 
it's different. I look at things objectively. Even though I have my own emotions invested in them because as people I really care about them and want to help them, it's a little bit easier than it is yourself, I think, because it's very easy to go, I I can adjust the session at the last minute. And sometimes that's a good thing to do, like yourself, if you decided not to run because actually there's a bit more fatigue in the body than you would have liked and maybe that's a smart decision. But also you think, oh, maybe I'll just get out there. And it's like, well, is it right? Is it wrong? Let's find out. Tricky. A good lesson from Paula Radcliffe here, actually, is that um, she she basically says, do 10 minutes anyway and then decide. And quite often, that, that first 10 minutes will tell you all you need to know. And uh, you might not fancy it and you might think you're going to be tired. And even in that first couple of minutes, you know, it might be a bit. But after 10 minutes, you're like, actually, I'm perfectly fine. What the hell was wrong with me? I'm going to do this session. And it's, and it's all right. Other times you do that 10 minutes and you go, you know what? This is a bad day. I need to just back off. So I think starting... And doing that kind of warm-up bit is probably a good idea to help you make a more objective decision. That's brilliant, isn't it? To have that kind of awareness of, well, let's just see how it goes. We'll definitely take that from Paula. Let's just see how it goes. Ten minutes. I'm open to stopping if that's the right thing to do, but actually I might get into it and I might be okay. That's good if you're coming back from injury, I guess, as well, Andy. You know, you can just test it safely. You're not going out there for an hour in your mind. You're just going to see how it goes. Really like that. Just getting on to the subject of training zones and specifically i'm interested to know your thoughts on what people often term junk mileage and it's not the easy runs it's not the higher intensity runs the threshold running the uncomfortable stuff it's that wedge in the middle i think many people often refer to that as kind of zone three stuff where middle of the road you're not really getting the true benefits from easy running because you're putting a bit too much fatigue in the body but you're not really getting the benefits from that golden magical stuff the upper end what's your view on junk mileage is it such a thing does it exist Well, it probably does, but I'd probably define it in a slightly different way to you. I think the sort of mileage where you're you're running um, at a speed that's below marathon pace, but not very far from, um, is probably quite beneficial because it's still relatively easy, but there's still enough quality in there that you're likely to be generating um, some fatigue that's going to sort of stimulate some physiological adaptation. I think actually the really easy runs where you're going at incredibly slow speed, I think I'd probably call that more junk really because you're probably not benefiting very much from that. I, I just think you're making yourself more tired and not, you know, it doesn't mean to say that they don't have a place sometimes, but I think, um, you know, there's this notion of polarized training at the moment where you do a lot of really slow, easy stuff and some high quality work. And there's this notion that you should neglect the stuff in the middle. I, I think that would be wrong, certainly for marathon training. I think you have to be doing work that's quite high-quality aerobic, but, you know, below marathon speed, but pushing up towards it. And then you need to be doing that block in the middle. I think that stuff is actually really quite important. A lot of the people that I trained with and that have done well in the UK over the last 20 or 30 years, people like Steve Jones barely ran easy at all. I don't think he ever ran a mile slower than six minutes. Paula was the same. You know, they they would they would do 100 miles a week, surely. Yeah, the the volume was there, but there wasn't a lot of easy work in it. It was all actually pretty stacked in the middle with some faster work as well. Occasionally, something a little bit slower if they were especially tired. But Paula was of the view that if you can't, you know, run at a certain speed on a particular day, you might as well have a rest day. And I kind of do subscribe to that to some extent. One of the reasons I ask you is this is this comes up a lot i hear this a lot this question of kind of junk mileage and it's something that i think about with my own running as well so i've had many blood lactate tests and a lot of my runners we put through a blood lactate test around the country 
And that bit in the middle, if you like, that zone three, and I do appreciate that you can have, you know, up to however many zones, you know, it can be three zones and upwards. But if we take the classic kind of five zone middle uh, model, rather, and people are referring to kind of zone three as that oh, junk mileage. Well, well actually, we, you have to spend time there if you're doing a marathon, because that's probably where you're going to be in the marathon, right? Which which kind of makes some sense to me, rather than missing it out completely. Absolutely. I think junk mileage seems to have been redefined recently because in my day it used to be that you're just running too slowly you're doing too many miles at too slow a speed i think we should redefine it from this day forth andy from now on junk mileage we're going to term this as mileage that serves no purpose if it serves no purpose then we shouldn't be doing it and sometimes slow and easy runs as long as they serve a purpose i mean i I don't particularly like to call them recovery runs because if you're that tired and you need to run that slowly you're not going to be recovering by doing them. You're only going to make yourself slightly more fatigued. So you might miss it out altogether. If you're training at a really pretty high quality, you're below your threshold and all of that, but you, you've pushed it up where you, you're working at, at it's, it's high quality aerobic training. I wouldn't call that junk miles at all. I think that's absolutely essential. If you're a distance runner, maybe not if you're a middle distance runner, but if you intend to run certainly 10K and above, that zone three, if you want to call it that, it probably is your bread and butter work. Do you test yourself, Andy? If, uh, do, you, do you go through the, the blood lactate testing for your own running? Uh, generally not, interestingly. Wow, that surprises me. Is there a reason behind that? Is it because it's what you do a lot of the time or you have a, a lot of knowledge of that and clearly you've helped lots of athletes with it or do you just want to escape from it or what's the reason behind that? I think I'm probably scared of what the results uh, say. You know, <laughs> you start at so low a baseline. Um, no, I, I think I, I'm actually quite an intuitive runner. I don't use heart rate monitors. I don't, you know, measure my training. I don't upload or download anything. I just actually run. And I, I kind of know because I've been, as you say, I've been doing it since I was 12, 13. So, you know, back then we didn't have the technology. And, and sometimes I'd have a stopwatch, you know, <laughs> running. And I'd get through what I knew was mile one. And I'd go, I reckon that's about 5.55. And I'd look at my watch and it'd be 5.55. So you get this kind of inner clock. You know, so I'm, and I know physically what my symptoms are if I'm running at a particular, I, I just know what I'm able to sustain for different durations. So I just kind of tune into that, really. I probably could be a bit more scientific about it. It's quite interesting, isn't it? Because I'm a big believer and I'm a big advocate of the value of this. For, and absolutely, I'm not undermining that. But for me, you know, especially at the level I'm at now, I mean, obviously back in the day, I did some testing then and it was, it was beneficial. It was useful, interesting reinforced what I kind of knew but I don't feel that there's any need for me to do that right now because I know the speeds and the durations that I need to train at for the goals that I'm trying to achieve. Do you think it's important for the majority of runners to build that sense of awareness that heightened sense of how do I actually feel let's not get too caught up on what the monitor on my wrist is telling me fine if you want to run to heart rate zones I quite like heart rate training and if you've been tested and you've gone down that path but actually don't just use that I think it's important to look at yourself and say, well, how, how do I feel? Do I feel okay? Do I not feel okay? Because that's actually really important, isn't it? I, th- I sense as well that some people have a better judgment of that than others. I don't know what your view is on that, Andy, with the athletes you've worked with. I absolutely um, agree with that. I, th- I think we can become too, probably people would be surprised to hear me say this, but we can be too too reliant on the technology. And I think it can be useful as, as little checkpoints sometimes. And some people definitely need it more than others. Some people will never see, never seem to generate that intuition, that kind of, that feel. But if, you know, I, I think we should be using the technology to enable us to learn our own 
our own limitations or, or our own responses. I think sometimes the heart rate zones can help slow athletes down as well as to speed them up, depending on the type of athlete they are, the type of personality they have, etc. Arguably, you could miss out on, let's say, a personal best by being too slavish about what your heart rate monitor is telling you. Sometimes you've got to throw caution to the wind. If you haven't, you can have a good day, and you can, you know, again, there's this noise in the system um, that the, the heart rate monitor and the distance monitors and everything don't necessarily tell you. So you know it's only when you use those as, as a tool rather than as a master that you'll learn that on a particular day this is this is good you know i can i can do really well today or actually i'm not going to do so well as as i might have predicted for myself to do. so it's, it's only by zoning into those symptoms and understanding those things that you, you're probably going to get the best out of yourself so so um while the technology is a useful addition you know i, I see people using it to frequently and, and becoming too reliant on it and uploading everything and getting really detailed on the data and uh yeah I, I just you know and if they're interested in doing that and that's what keeps them motivated fine but i don't think it's necessary to do well with don't be a slave to the data i think that's a real key takeaway there actually just thinking as i listen to what you say there andy you know when you really do build that sense of awareness it's something i try and work on with myself you know it's kind of an ongoing process where i try to listen to how am i feeling but i think what can happen from that so if you're listening to this show now and perhaps you're somebody that does rely on the data too heavily maybe you know that you do you don't really listen to how you're feeling very much maybe it's time to start because i think that can build some trust andy some self-trust does that make sense because you trust how you feel which i think can put you in good stead in a race as well you know if you're i don't know three quarters of the way through a marathon and you're feeling good and you feel like you're able to step on the gas slightly well, if you're relying on tech and whatnot, if you haven't got that trust in your own judgment, you probably will hold yourself back. Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, I think what we're talking about there is individuals and their own goals, time, times for given distances. But it's probably even more important if you're a competitive athlete and you're racing against other people. You know, there's a lot of psychological mind games going on there. And you, the last thing you want to be doing is looking at your watch and checking your speed and checking your heart rate and making decisions based on that. You've got to make decisions based upon how you feel and what you see happening around you. And I think you've got to leave your watch and all of that stuff behind. You know, I, I can see the value in at least having a stopwatch if you're trying to, let's say you're trying to break three hours for the marathon. You want to know what your split was as you went through halfway. It's, you know, all of that stuff, that's that's vital. But if you're in, if you're racing against people, I'd you know it's a distraction that you don't need really, and you've got to be able to as I say to throw caution to the wind occasionally, um, follow a break that you know might look suicidal or make a break yourself, but it might be the the move that wins you the race. And if you were yeah, held back, it was like oh my heart, I can't possibly make the break now because my heart rate says I can't. Then you would never know. It's a big difference, isn't there, between racing for position and racing for time finish time you know you're in your own world in your own zone when you're just looking at the clock because it doesn't really matter what anybody else does around you but if you're in that competitive place and you're racing for position the tactics do come into place it's very interesting just staying on the subject of racing and pushing and i can't let you go without asking you a little bit about uh, kipchoge and the whole breaking too do you think and i'm sure you've been asked this many times andy but do you think that two hours will go in a typical road official marathon do you think that will happen uh you, definitely um it will happen but i i couldn't tell you exactly when but it'll probably be sooner than any of us would <laughs> hazard to guess i mean you just look at some of the times that are being run for half marathons and for 5ks at the moment you know 
Kipchoge's just taken it into a different league. I think all you need is, is probably going to happen in somewhere like uh, Berlin. That's traditionally been the fastest of the of the courses. I mean, remember Elliot ran two hundred one there completely solo not so long ago. If you had great conditions in Berlin and you had all the best athletes targeted that on the same day and there was some incentive and they had the right pacemakers and everything else, I could see it going for sure. I don't think it'll be the kind of current generation. It'll be the ones that are currently running 5 and 10K. But I think within three to five years, I think, yeah, I I think it could happen. Putting on your professor of applied physiology hat now, Andy, I'm going to ask you this question. We know Elliot uh, often talks about no human is limited and i'm sure that's more of a of a mindset in many in many ways what is the limit here what what do you think realistically is the limit let's say in the next 20 years from what you can tell from what the science can tell us at the moment that's a big question yeah it is and it depends on whether you mean in a race like berlin or if you mean one that's sort of manufactured a bit to enable the athlete to express their physiology best i mean if you go back to mike joiner's original jap paper from early 90s i think you know if, if you get an athlete with the the right combination of vo2 max lactate threshold running economy i think he predicted that it would be about 157 and I guess that kind of thing still still would hold. There was an assumption there, though, that those values that the athlete has on the start line don't deteriorate much as the race progresses. But we know that they do. Economy in particular, you know, can fall away. I, I think people like Elliot um, is the sort of fourth dimension. We mentioned the, the three variables there, but there's a fourth one, which is fatigue resistance. To what extent do those three numbers on the start line actually deteriorate or not? And um, it seems to me that Elliot doesn't fatigue to the same extent. I think his economy at mile 25 is probably as good as it was in mile one. And exactly what the mechanisms for that are, what contributes to some people being able to maintain their economy and others not, you know, I think that's that's the million dollar question for sports physiologists at the moment but you know i'll give you a little anecdote we had we had elliot over for um he got, he got an honorary degree from the university of exeter a couple of years ago and we had a nice lunch with him and i think it was our vice chancellor who said how you know how difficult was it to break two hours and he he said it was actually quite easy he had plenty in reserve now quite how fast he could have run in vienna is anyone's guess but it seemed to me i mean you saw him sprint over the finish line fresh as a daisy i wouldn't be surprised if he could maybe have run 158 that day i don't necessarily buy in completely to aliad's no human is limited i think what he clearly my, my job as a physiologist is to find what those limitations are and everyone has them i mean if i was to say the marathon's going to be running 90 minutes one day you wouldn't believe me and you'd be quite right not to that's ridiculous but i think what he means is that we can probably all do a little bit better than we might initially imagine well, I think, Andy, we'll all be waiting with bated breath and excitement to see what Elliot can do in due course or any of the other greatest marathon runners out there and, and that are waiting in the wings to come and break records. I mean, it's, it, it's such a pleasure to watch Elliot at the moment, isn't it? We kind of really are witnessing greatness. And, of course, it's not going to be around forever. I know. It's going to be a sad day when he eventually hangs his spikes up or his, uh, his alpha flies, whatever it might be. But <laughs> I think his, his legacy is going to be there forever, isn't it? And I, I don't think we're going to you know lose his influence i think he'll become a great coach and an ambassador and um you know he's, he's got plenty of projects i think which are not necessarily running related but he'll use running as a vehicle to promote um climate change issues and education and so on he's a he's a special bloke that's for sure it's it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you today andy i really appreciate you coming on the show i do have two more questions for you i can't let you go without asking you mentioned the alpha flies there i'm sure there's lots of people listening to this thinking ask andy about the shoes ask him about the fancy shoes 
for the general public running out there, lining up for April marathons, spring marathons, do we need to be looking at carbon shoes? Are they really going to give the give us the edge, Andy? Will you be wearing them in Brighton? I will be for sure. Yeah, um, I think they they're great. They have they have been a bit of a, a bit of a game. You know, there's no question that they improve running economy and that they can improve performance. But it depends what your goals are. You know, I think if you just want to run a run a marathon, you don't necessarily. You know, but if you want, if you've got a certain goal, certain time, a certain position, then it's one of those things along with nutrition and you know, it's one of those other considerations nowadays. Um, Trainers have evolved for forever since they were first invented. You know, the new generation of trainers have been better than the old ones. Certainly there's, you know, no pun intended, a step change with the vapor flies, the next percent, the alpha flies, and all of the other manufacturers that are doing other shoes. What I like about the alpha fly in particular is it's so well cushioned. I mean, vapor flies were as well. And I think actually there's a role for the shoe in the general population as well, because if people want to begin running, and lots of people do, especially this time of year, of course, after Christmas and New Year's resolutions and such like, they they start um, a running program and they find that they, it gets really hard. They get stiff, they get tired, they get sore, it's hard work. The thing about the Alpha Fly, forget the, um, or the Vapor Fly, forget the carbon plate, they're just so well cushioned. And people forget about the fact that you know, it's, it's not just the acute effect that you get within a race. These top guys in Africa are wearing them in their training runs as well. It means they can do more volume. They can run that volume, volume more quickly because they don't get so sore. Their muscles just don't get so damaged. The joints don't get. So actually, if we, as you know, eventually the price of these things will come down. And I think they could actually be a boon for everybody because people can go out and they'll enjoy running. They won't be so sore and so battered and they'll be able to run again the next day. So I, I think they're... Um, overall a very very good advancement you know i think they're good and i'll definitely wear them in brighton i've been training in them most of the time too that's a great point you've made andy because i think the focus is so heavily towards performance and are they going to make me faster and and yes potentially but actually they could make you faster by the sheer fact that you may be able to run more in training you know not necessarily wear them for every single run but if it's going to keep you out there more and your legs aren't as battered you already mentioned the importance of resistance to fatigue over something like a big distance like a marathon that something like that could really help so i think it's a great point andy i have one final question for you are you ready we ask all of our guests this are you ready Okay, go for it. You've been a great guest so far. Many, many guests have faltered at this point and then just been left stuttering. Don't be one of those guests, please, Andy. There's no pressure on you. There's no pressure. We want you to come back. We want you to come back. (laughs) He cleared his throat. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) This is your weekly dose of running motivation. What does the word motivation mean to you? Don't falter, Andy. Oh, I have, haven't I? Yeah. What's the word motivation mean mean to me? Yeah, I don't know quite what it means. That's an interesting question. It's a it's about it's finding something, isn't it, that that inspires you. Really, I'd put it like that. So, it's it's only when you find the thing that inspires you that you can be motivated to try to chase that dream, that goal, whatever you want to call it. So, yeah, it's along those lines for me. And unless you have a target. And that target is something that means something to you that isn't too stretching and yet isn't too easy, then you'll never be motivated. So I think always start with finding something on the horizon that you can aim towards, and I think that'll probably keep you motivated. I don't know if that's a a reasonable answer. I got there in the end. 
I love it. And you clearly have bags of motivation for your own goals, Sub 3. I wish you well in Brighton. Are you going to get out this afternoon? Have we motivated you to get out there, put your trainers on? Are you going to do the Paula Radcliffe thing? Just give it 10 minutes, see how you feel? Yeah, I'll do that for sure. <laughs> but I've got, a, I've got a feeling I'll be all right. I should, uh, I should just crack on and do it, I think. <laughs> have a great session, Andy. Look forward to catching up with you very soon. Thanks very much. Enjoy talking to you. Take care. Running with Jake, the podcast. Well, I'm super fired up now, having listened to Andy. What a top guy. But I am in a bit of a quandary today. I'm I'm in a bit of a quandary and I perhaps should have asked Andy which session I should do today. I don't know. I just don't know what to do. I'm confused. What you want to do, mate, is do an ale session. (laughs) Because they're the best kind. Like I said, should have asked Andy. Should have asked Andy. So basically, I've got a marathon pace session this week that I need to be doing. So that's like 15-minute easy run and then a 45-minute marathon effort. I've got a 90-minute medium-long run, as I like to call it, in the schedule as well. And I've also got a threshold session. I really like threshold sessions. And and not only that, once I've decided, I've then got to decide where to do it. Do I do it on the treadmill? Quite like a bit of treadmill running. As Andy mentioned, he's a big fan of, of treadmill running. I've got a really good track here locally in Winchester. I'm tempted to get down to the track. Conditions are looking pretty good. I just, I don't know, man. I don't know. I just don't know. Maybe I have a rest day. Or you could just do it around the bedroom. Just like that. While Marty's in bed. It'd be great. Seriously, just move the bed out from the wall, do laps of the room. It's fine. For God's sake, man, stop talking running. Just tell people about Patreon. (laughs) I've got nothing to say about Patreon other than, um, yes, you can have the podcast for free forever. Of course you can. Um, If you've got a few quid and you think it's worth paying for, though, feel free. We'd love to to have you pay for it because it does help us out and and the podcast costs us money to do and all that kind of stuff. So if you do feel like um, throwing a few quid into the pot, that'd be wonderful of you. Think of us as, you know, when you go for a lovely country drive and there's little um, pots of honey and an honesty box there. You wouldn't just go up to the honey and take it, would you? And then not leave a couple of quid. Um, It's the same kind of thing, really. If you use it, if you enjoy it, um, then, you know, pay for it. It's up to you. Uh, Runningwithjake.com forward slash podcast. Just click on the Patreon thing at the top there. There you go. Don't just be listening to the show and then scarper. That's like pinching a couple of eggs down a country lane and buggering off. You wouldn't do that, would you? Honey, eggs, whatever. You wouldn't do that. You egg thief, you. You damned egg thief. Chicken, you wouldn't do that. Don't chase the chicken. The difference between this and something, an, an honesty box down a country lane, is you really wouldn't just take something from an honesty box. I mean, that would be wrong. Uh, regardless, if you couldn't afford it, you wouldn't take the eggs. Feel free. If you can't afford it, take the eggs, enjoy the podcast, and don't pay because somebody else will be paying for you. Just rest assured that there's no pressure to pay. But if you want to, runningwithjake.com forward slash podcast. Of course, the big problem with honesty boxes is not down to an individual's conscience. It's actually having bloody money. Who has money? What's money? If you can't pay with your phone, <laughs> we've stuffed it. We've absolutely stuffed it. Take In that case, take the eggs and run because you wanted to pay, you just had no means. <laughs> and now it's time to take another one of your questions. It is hashtag AskJake. Today's question comes from Susan who lives in a flat area and she wants to know how she can replicate a hill training and get similar benefits. Uh, I think, look, it's, it's important to look at what the, the basics are are here susan what do you get from hill work well it does improve your running technique uh it is good for strength work as well 
but it's also interval training isn't it it's a good cardiovascular hit so you can replicate the intensity certainly of hill sessions on the flat so that's the first thing if you're looking to get some of the strength benefits that you get from hill work then look at incorporating some strength work whether that's some home workouts whether that's garden workouts whether you're a member uh, of a local gym and i think in terms of the benefits that hills give you uh, with regards to running form and technique because it can help with ankle mobility it can help with your technique i think incorporating some running drills of course on the flat let's say in the local park getting some drills into your sessions i think can really help tick that box as well so hills are a great form of training uh, but it does depend obviously on if you have access to them which you don't but it doesn't mean you have to miss out on those wonderful benefits i hope that helps if you've got a question it's hashtag ask jake or you can drop me an email at podcast at runningwithjake.com that's it i've decided treadmill i'm going to hit the treadmill today i'm going to do a treadmill session fancy that fancy that i'm glad you fancy that that's good <laughs> carry on that brings us to the end of another episode i've got stuff to do <laughs> running with... <laughs> that brings us that brings us that brings us to the end is it is it ever going to end who knows yeah. maybe it will just continue forever it's all right no really we must go we've got stuff to do i mean i gotta hit the treadmill for a start pete's got to blow his nose on his disgusting sweaty hanky have a great week of running i hope you enjoy today's show a big thank you to andy jones for joining us we will be back next week for more running motivation oh and one more thing One day you may not be able to run. Today is not that day. <laughs> <laughs>